Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Today's program's got uh, a few... uh, a few bumps in the road. We're going to start out talking about the COVID witch, and then we have some brain-expanding suggestions. Potential heart attack cure found in in human placentas and uh, a genetically engineered bacteria that acts like a bloodhound to find cancer. And also answers to your questions. I have an email coming up, and also, if we have time, a surreal moment. I I pull these out of the news sometimes, and this one was just too good not to share, especially since we're sort of uh, starting Halloween early here in uh, mid-September, because, hey, uh, the commercial cycle is way behind, is uh, way ahead of me. So there's a big box store near me that's... uh, Well, there's a large, she's maybe 20 feet uh, tall. She's an animatronic witch who has motion sensors that when you approach, gestures and cackles and says something unintelligible. It's been up since early August. And the image of this witch came back to me unbidden yesterday as I was listening to the morning monthly county public health report. I think I'm going to call her the COVID witch. What did she bring me for Halloween? Well, let's see. The wastewater levels of COVID at the South County Treatment Plant have been tripling. They're tripled since August, and that's only a couple of weeks. Case positivity statewide is up to 13.7%. And there have been a a few deaths, I know of at least two in the nursing homes. So it's back. A new vaccine for COVID is out. They took the most dominant strain that was around in June, and they built an RNA vaccine around it. It gets uh, rolled out next week. Everybody over six months should get the vaccine. Elders and babies first, please. They're the ones who die. Uh, In August of 2023, 600 people died of COVID. Just to give you a little context on that, in August of 2022, 3,000 people died of COVID in the United States. In August of 2021, 14,000 people died of COVID. And just to put it in context again regarding the vaccine, if we have a light COVID year and people get vaccinated and this vaccination works well, Modeling suggests that 46,000 people will die of COVID in the United States this season. And that's more, I want to tell you, that die in a bad influenza year. So this is still to be taken very seriously. And that's not even getting into the emerging data about long COVID, which says basically a low-grade or even asymptomatic case can actually switch on something weird in your immune system and put you into a chronic healthcare situation. We are not out of the woods yet. So COVID witch says, dust off your mask, dearie, go get vaxxed 
And stay safe in crowds and indoor spaces, especially public restrooms, because you know that super flush that you're hearing in the next stall? Well, that's aerosolizing COVID virus if it's there in the person in the next stall. So let's just put our masks on when we go to the bathroom. Best advice I can give you. Uh, just wrote that in an email to a patient who's traveling to Europe. It's like, yeah, while you're on the plane, you're good. When you go into the bathroom in the plane or when you go into the bathroom at the airport, pull out that N95 or KN95 or whatever you've got. So I've also got news on the RSV front. We've got monoclonals and they've arrived just in time. Last year, many of you may recall, we had a triple peak of RSV, flu, and COVID that all hit over the the same couple of months. It was ugly, probably the result of us relaxing a bit about uh, masking uh, after COVID seemed to be declining and we we stopped obsessively masking for two years. But the problem is, over that two years... A whole bunch of people didn't get exposed to RSV or flu. So when we relaxed our vigilance, we had a balloon payment on our immunity tab to pay off. So maybe that this year, it means that there'll be less RSV because we've got everybody got exposed last year. But then again, maybe not. So at least we have a new weapon, another set of unpronounceable monoclonals. Paul Vizumab and Nirsivimab. Uh, the later, Nirsivimab, is uh, called Bay Fortis, which is way better in terms of branding, and it's coming to a pediatrician's office near you. It's a one time shot of antibodies against RSV, kind of like the old gamma globulin shots that we used to do for hepatitis, but much, much cleaner. It's safe to be given within the first week of life. It can be given even before a newborn leaves the hospital, I'm told. It's for healthy kids under six months, kids who are very vulnerable to this RSV virus. They get something called bronchiolitis, and it's ugly. Little babies have little airways, and when those little airways swell and clog with goo, these infants struggle to breathe. It's a bit like... Well, it's a bit like pertussis whooping cough. Uh, It's a bit like diphtheria, which I have clinically never seen, but which used to be a terrible disease of infants called hyaline membrane disease because they got these thick sort of saran wrap-like structures blocking their airways. So this is... A real thing. Infectious disease kills. And I'm pleased to say that this RSV monoclonal antibody shot is going to be free to everyone in the state through the Vaccines for Children program. And I'm hoping the parents will let them have it. 880,000, excuse me, 80,000 kids are hospitalized every year, children under five with RSV in this country. And 100 to 300 babies die of this disease. Vaccines work, and these therapies work. I want to tell you a story uh, about my early training when I was learning hospital pediatrics. And one of the things was that we always had 
a few children in the hospital on the pediatric ward with meningitis. And this was a common disease that children would come in with. They'd Some of them would actually have seizures from it. Some of them sustained brain damage. All of them were very, very sick. And it was caused largely by Haemophilus influenza virus. And here's the thing, folks. After the vaccine for that came out, pediatric admissions for meningitis plummeted. And over over the course of 10 or 15 years, A lot of hospitals ended up closing their pediatric wards because they were literally empty most of the time. Now, that's a great stride forward, unless, of course, you're trying to figure out how to train people to do pediatric hospital medicine, in which case it's a problem. But you know what? It's a problem I I love to have. All right. And I just want to celebrate for a moment that we have a problem like that. And hopefully RSV is going to go the way of Haemophilus influenza meningitis in Sala. All right. Moving on. And I'm going to give a shout out to one of my avid listeners, Pat Z, who sent me a wonderful link to a website called freethink.com. And the next few articles are actually pulled from that website. I want to give credit where credit is due. But the one that really jumped off the page at me was one called Brain Experiment Suggests That Consciousness Relies on Quantum Entanglement. So, um, Supercomputers can beat us at chess and make many more calculations per second than the human brain, but there's things our brains do way better that computers can't match, like interpreting events and situation and using imagination, creativity, and problem solving. Our brains are amazing, amazing computers, and not just using neurons, but the connections between the neurons to process and interpret information. So where's consciousness? Neuroscience is big question mark. How does it arise from this jumbled mass of neurons and synapses? Uh, after all, these are enormously complex, but to quote the article, we're still talking about a wet bag of molecules and electrical impulses. That's a wonderful turn of phrase. Well, Scientists at Trinity College Dublin have been using a technique, I should say repurposing a technique that's been used by physicists to test for quantum gravity. And their results, if they're confirmed, will establish the idea that quantum entanglement is actually at work in our brains. So, first of all, There are certain isotopes in our brains whose spin change how our brains and body react. For example, xenon, a rare earth gas with a nuclear spin of 1 over 2, can actually have anesthetic properties, whereas xenon that does not have a spin has no anesthetic properties. And there are various different isotopes of lithium with different spins that actually change the development of rats and also change parenting ability in rats. So we've always assumed that the brain was a classical symptom, a classical system. But how would we prove that the brain was using quantum computing? 
uh, especially since the operators might be very different than what's going on with atomic systems. Well, a man named Christian Kurskins, who's one of the researchers at Trinity University, uh, wrote a uh, wrote a paper about how we might be able to do that. And the answer is, as all things lately are in terms of advancing neuroscience, using an MRI. Because apparently there's an MRI that can sense entanglement. Uh, So the scientists here look to see whether proton spins in the brain could interact and become entangled through some unknown intermediary. Uh, this is similar to the research that's being done on quantum gravity. and the, It's an unknown system. So you can't, it's, it's kind of what I say about chi, you know, nobody really, n- none of my straight colleagues believe in acupuncture or believe that there's this thing called chi, because I don't have a chiometer that I can hold up and say, see, there it is. And until we get a chiometer, it's all indirect. Well, this is another form of indirect reasoning. Uh, the idea is that if you can show that one thing changes another without any way of making uh, the connection through a known system, then the unknown must be what's going on. And in this case, the unknown is quantum. So it's sort of a uh, it's sort of a process by uh, eliminating, as Sherlock would say, the impossible. Then the then what remains, no matter how improbable, must be what's going on. So let's start with the heartbeat. The heart's not just an organ. The heart, like many other parts of our body, is engaged in two-way continuous communication with the brain. Both organs send each other signals. And we see this when the heart reacts to various phenomena, such as pain, attention, motivation. And as the heart beats, it generates a signal called the heartbeat potential which with the peak of each heartbeat potential, this is electrophysiology, the researchers saw a corresponding spike in the NMR signal, which corresponds to interactions among protein spins. So this signal could be the result of entanglement, and witnessing it is this sort of indirect evidence that there is a non-classical intermediary. So as if the... Heartbeat potential is electrophysiologists, uh, but it's tied to consciousness because, as I said, if you f- if you have fear or anger, your heartbeat changes. So it's the the emotions are actually affecting it. And here's additional evidence that this is uh, that this connection is only present during conscious awareness. This HEP and NMR signal shift only occurs when you're awake. And they showed that because two of the people they were studying, and I think they had, I'm sorry, 40 subjects in this MRI, so they saw it in a lot of people. Well, two of them fell asleep in the MRI, which having been out, stood outside an MRI machine, I've never been in one, but I hear it's really noisy in there, and it's sure real noisy outside of it. So the fact that they saw it fell asleep is amazing to me, but they did. And when they did, the NMR signal faded and disappeared. So there's some kind of connection, and it's not just electrical. What's going on here? Well, stay tuned. But I found that enormously intriguing. And thanks again to Pat Z for bringing it to my attention. And I'm going to take a moment and Uh, pivot to an email 
that we got recently, and this is from uh, Ellen in Sausalito. Ellen writes, uh, Dear Dr. Don, a few weeks ago, two hours after eating dinner, I suddenly became very ill with diarrhea, nausea, and a feeling of motion sickness. It lasted two days. It's been seven weeks since this quote-unquote food poisoning, and the following symptoms still persist. Nausea, motion sickness, stabbing pain over the right eye, and unable to eat a normal diet and losing weight. Endoscopy indicates mild gastritis, but no other cause other than the food poisoning. I need your advice in terms of how to proceed in terms of further testing and treatment. Can you recommend a functional doctor in San Francisco? So I'm going to start out answering Ellen's question, but then I'm going to riff a little bit on what could possibly be going on here. Uh, First of all, you want to go to functionalmedicine.org, which is a website, and click on the Find a Doctor, and you can put in your zip code and click on Certified. If you put in the Santa Cruz zip code, you're going to find me and a couple of other doctors. But the point is certified functional medicine physicians have undergone a very rigorous training course, and we have passed a board exam, and we have presented cases to a, let's call it, jury of our peers who have said, yeah, you know how to practice functional medicine. So it's not just somebody who puts that on the list of things they do, which is legal, but not what you're looking for, either you or Ellen. So here's the thing that I don't know, and that's whether or not Ellen had vomiting. Because if she, and I also don't know how old Ellen is, which is relevant here, because a middle-aged person, if they get uh, vomiting, can shake, can develop a vestibular disruption, a disruption in their inner ear, in their balance organ. And that can cause persistent nausea because motion sickness and nausea, six to seven weeks is way too long for food poisoning to do something like this. So I have to think from a functional standpoint that in functional medicine, we'd say, okay, the food poisoning may have been a trigger but it unlocked something else, and now the something else is what we have to figure out. So she mentions stabbing pain above the eye, and so I would love to ask Ellen questions about the questions about that, and I would start with the PQRST questions. So P stands for provocation and palliation. What makes it worse? What makes it better? Pain over the right eye could be sinusitis. Sinusitis will get worse when you bend over. It'll it'll hurt when you blow your nose. Uh, What about making it better? Does an ice pack on the back of the neck make it better? Does heat make it better? Those are clues that it could be muscular and so on. So there are a lot of questions there I'd love to ask. Also, the quality she gave us. It's stabbing. It's not dull. It's not aching. And then the region. Is it just over the right eye or does it go to the jaw, for example, like a trigeminal neuralgia might? Does it go, uh, is there pain with chewing or opening the mouth? Does the jaw click? That would be a whole set of things, TMJ. What about uh, eye strain? What about, are you doing a lot of computer work? Did you just get new glasses? Is it just a coincidence? 
maybe. Severity, how severe it is, how long it lasts. And this is especially important. How long have you had it? How long does it last? How uh, have you ever had anything like this before? Those are all the PQRST questions that a good doctor should be pulling out when they get your history. So if it's food poisoning, typically the symptoms are very short-lived. Something like if it's a toxin-related symptom, like staph aureus, uh, you're going to get really rapid onset of symptoms, often accompanied by vomiting and diarrhea and cramping, and you're going to feel like real crap for 24 to 36 hours, and then you'll have a recovery period, but the symptoms will will disappear. Something like salmonella, which is an infection that actually stays in your body, or shigella, or uh, some of the beta-hemolytic E. coli's, these can last for a, for a week. And of course, the viral gastroenteritis can hit very hard, very quickly, and can mimic food poisoning, but they're going to hang around for three to seven days. From a functional medicine, uh, she says you can't eat a normal diet. And so I'm like, well... What were the specific? What are the specific foods that are tolerated? What can you eat? And what was the index meal that you think you got the food poisoning from? Because, for example, if it was leftover Chinese food with white rice, then I'm thinking about Yersinia intercolitica. If it was grandma's potato salad, then I'm thinking about uh, salmonella or staph. So these are the ways that we parse this as a physician, but as a functional physician, we're also asking ourselves, who is the person who has the disease? What's their background, age, family history, occupation? Do they have any vulnerabilities or other priors? For example, if a person has asthma and hay fever and gets hives, I'm going to be thinking more about a specific food sensitivity, or maybe a histamine mast cell overreaction uh, syndrome. Uh, I'm going to be asking especially about uh, cramping as a symptom and skin symptoms in that situation. There are other factors. Could this be the development of a drug reaction? Are Are you taking any new medications? Because some medications often cause nausea and dizziness. So, Could that have been overlapping? I also worry about mold toxins, especially in Northern California, if there's been any flooding or water damage, because mold toxins can do something like this. So to wrap it up here, it's a Pandora's box when a person has an inexplicable persistence of symptoms after an acute illness. And the way that you're going to to address that Pandora's box is either you're going to try to get to the bottom of it, or you're going to give the lady some meclizine uh, for motion sickness and some Tylenol for the pain over her right eye and send her off to the dietician. Well, I prefer the functional medicine mode where we actually get to the root of the problem. In fact, some people even call that root cause medicine. As you all know, I am very, very pro-science, and I get very excited when I hear about things that are going to cure structural damage. 
So this latest article has me very excited. Potential heart attack treatment discovered in human placentas. Well, you know, the placentas are filtering the blood from the fetus, and a lot of stem cells are in that blood. Well, when you look in the placenta after the baby is born, it's not really terribly useful unless you ritualistically uh, eat it, which is what's kind of a thing for a while. I don't know if that's still a thing, but uh, it was a thing for a while. Uh, Animals, of course, do eat their placenta because, hey, it's protein. But researchers have recently been able to isolate special stem cells in the human placenta that uh, were already known to fix uh, damaged heart cells in mice, but trials are underway to try these in humans. So when a human has a heart attack, they it's like the drip sprinkler system on your uh, on your garden clogging up. And at least in my garden, I won't necessarily notice until the plant has you know keeled over in the summer, and it's like, oh, I think we lost the drip emitter there. You can think of the heart muscle that's fed by that blood vessel dying back and turning into scar tissue. But people who are, so how did they even think to look in the placenta? Where people who have just given birth or who are about to can very rarely get something called peripartum cardiomyopathy. And the heart gets damaged, they go into heart failure, and the the effects are very similar to a heart attack. But about 50% of the people who get this completely recover and heal all of the damage. And we can see the we can see the damaged heart on our with our technology and yet it grows back. But it doesn't happen in people with heart attacks. So a team at Mount Sinai thought, "Hmm, I wonder if there are stem cells in the placenta that are repairing the mother's heart, which thank you very much baby for fixing my heart that you damaged in the first place. Yes, good. And in 2011, they did publish a paper proving the connection. What they did was they, they added fluorescent tags to the stem cells in the pregnant mouse's placenta by, you know, uh, genetic manipulation, right? They were able to watch these cells travel to the mouse's heart, attached to the damaged tissue, and then differentiate into several different types of healthy heart cells. And in 2019, they finally, it took them eight years, they finally isolated the cells. These cells uh, express a specific protein called CDX2. And so they said, let's try this in male mice. So they injected the cells into the tail veins of male mice, and they traveled to the heart of the male mice who'd been given a heart attack experimentally ahead of time, and lo and behold, healed their hearts. They're like a supercharged population of stem cell, and they can target the site of the injury. They they seem summoned to the site of any injury in within the circulatory system, and they're able to avoid rejection. And of course, I, I am assuming that the male mice were, you know, obviously they were genetically different than the cells in that placenta, and yet they didn't get rejected. So researchers... Uh, having now demonstrated that these stem cells can actually become contracting muscle cells and grow new blood vessels walls, have created clones of these cells and are now 
uh, they've now got a whole cloning system where they're looking to to try this in pigs. And if that works, then they're going to try it in people. And we might be able, when someone comes in with a heart attack, if we aren't able to stop the damage to the heart by doing our typical emergency percutaneous uh, pumps and getting in there and putting in a stent, we'll be able to heal it. And so there are several approaches that are in competition with this, but I think we're entering into a whole new world of regenerative cardiology, and I really can't wait to see what happens. All right, so this from Carrie. Uh, Carrie says, I missed the first few minutes, so I missed what you were emphasizing about wearing masks in restrooms. Please recap. Sure thing, Carrie. So first of all, let's talk about the flush. Not all viruses come out in your uh, excretions, but we do know that uh, we do find the COVID virus, uh, hepatitis virus, a number of uh, monkeypox, a number of other lovely things uh, coming out in wastewater. And wastewater surveillance was one of the real great ideas of 2020 because it allowed us to anticipate uh, flare-ups and concentrate resources before everybody hit the hospital because the wastewater bumps would precede the flood of people into the emergency room so we could direct our resources where they needed to be. And this was back when we had therapeutic agents that were being given to very sick people and we had lots of very sick people and not enough therapeutic agents. So getting ahead of the demand was very, very helpful. And after we created the infrastructure for this, it's become an established part of public health surveillance. So that being said, we have a tripling of our COVID-19 in the wastewater at the South County Wastewater Treatment Plant. And that's probably the usual trend is that the South County precedes the North County. So I think we can anticipate that we'll see it appear as well at the second plant. And what that means is that it's out there. It's We can't quantify it. It's obviously, you can't quantify something that's been diluted and distributed like that. But it gives us a sense for, is it going up? Yeah. How fast is it going up? Well, it's tripled in a couple of weeks. So that's not good. And we are seeing bumps in hospitalizations, and we're seeing bumps in case positivity. And where are you going to get exposed? Well, you're going to be exposed indoors, in crowded spaces, which describes most public restrooms. And you don't even need to cough or be coughing or even know you're sick to be shedding virus. And every flush throws a whole bunch of vaporized water up into the air, which is, by the way, why you should have a toothbrush cover on your toothbrush in your bathroom. Because you, if you, if I were to take most toothbrushes and... Uh, plate them out, you know, on an agar and identify the organisms, I'd find find stool organisms. So have I grossed you out yet? I hope so. Anyway, sterilizing your toothbrush, changing it frequently, and hooding it so that little particles don't settle on it are all good practices. I have a handy-dandy UV sterilizer for mine, and they're quite inexpensive and highly recommended. Uh, especially if someone else in the household is sick, but even if no one is, because this is a stealth bug, which 
I think I've already uh, beat the topic to death, so I'm going to stop and move to our next story. World's first experiment shows a genetically engineered bacteria curing cancers. This is a real medical advance. This was published in Science magazine uh, at the end of August. And so researchers have been able to successfully engineer uh, bacteria. Let's talk a little bit about uh, gene transfer, okay? Inheritance, right? So vertical transference is when I, when the mommy and the daddy get together and make a baby, and the baby is half mom and half dad. Uh, DNA comes down the line, unless, of course, we're talking mitochondria, which just comes from the mom, because that big old egg has got all the mitochondria you're ever going to have. Of course, they divide, right? Because they were bacteria once, but that's a different conversation. But genes can also be transmitted horizontally. DNA can be transmitted. A passed between unrelated cells, and this is particularly common in bacteria land. The microbial world is full of this, and DNA actually passes freely from different species even. This is how bacterial resistance can really get rolling. Uh, Certain bacteria actually salvage genes from cell-free DNA found in their immediate environment. This free-floating DNA is released when cells die, and these bacteria actually hoover up the the cell-free DNA. It's uh, called natural competence, and they sample their nearby environment and acquire genes that might be useful to them. So they've used a bacteria called Acinetobacter bailey, and... Uh, it's a de- they decided to try and make a disease-detecting ce- uh, cell. So they modified this genome to contain long sequences of mirror DNA, DNA that is found in a human cancer gene. And these are complementary DNA sequences. So as the bacteria divides, they act as landing pads, and the, that free DNA that's been taken up can actually be split and end up attaching like you know, white Velcro attaching to black Velcro because the loops and the and the fuzzy stuff are the same, right? So when the DNA gets taken up by the bacteria, if it's tumor DNA, it gets it gets integrated into the bacterial genome. And then once it's there, you can uh, you you can find the the cancer. Here's what you what they do. They they basically add another gene to the bacteria, a bacteria a antibiotic resistance gene, and that antibiotic resistance gene is right behind where the tumor DNA is supposed to sit. And if the tumor DNA attaches, then it activates the downstream DNA, which is the disease resistance. So you can take this bacteria and basically uh, grow it on an antibiotic uh, gelatin plate. And if the bacteria is antibiotic resistance, you've confirmed the presence of cancer. And since cancer DNA is found in blood, it's found in urine, we can potentially use these bacteria to identify specimens that are painlessly or almost painlessly extracted from humans to confirm the presence of cancer. So it's 
theoretical at this point, but they were able to use uh, purified tumor DNA, and then that worked. So then they grew the biosensor alongside living tumor cells, which shed enough DNA for it to be taken up by the bacteria. So essentially, if you just grow these things in a giant vat, you're going to be able to train these bacteria, very analogous to the way naive T cells are trained by uh, by another cell to uh, basically attack a a virus or attack a a tumor. So they they are now going to the idea of let's send, let's attach not just to the disease resistance, let's attack a specific biological therapy. Let's attack, basically think about it as a homing pigeon that's armed with a chemotherapy bomb that will go off when the when it finds the tumor DNA. We may be able to be actually doing, well, we've talked about phage therapy before, but we may be actually able to defang the bacteria, make it relatively harmless and immune tolerant to ourselves. And maybe we can even use this to ident- to attack tumor in vivo. That's a long way off, but it's just such an exciting concept that I had to share it with you. Let's change topics now and spend a moment talking about sleep. Ah, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. Boy. Do we all need more sleep? And uh, a good night's sleep is essential for many things, detoxification and uh, just (laughs) coherency the next day, a properly functioning immune system. So much relies on regular good quality sleep. But neurosciences have discovered that good night's sleep is essential for building and storing our memories. But also, according to a new paper looking at sleep, we now know what type of memories our brains prefer to store during which stage of sleep. So there's a, there's a thing called delta, which is the deep dreamless sleep. And as we're moving into dream sleep, we go through a period of theta waves. And theta waves are uh, induced by deep relaxation and meditation. I actually took uh, some classes once where I was hooked up to a brainwave machine that would give me a tone when I managed to get into theta waves. And honestly, that's how I learned to meditate, because it's kind of hard for me to get there until I know where there is. And once I once I knew that I was there, then I could go, okay, how did I, let's get back there. And then I knew how to get back there. And I could uh, (laughs) find less uh, expensive ways of meditating. So during non-rapid eye movement sleep, which is our dreamless delta wave stage, our brains very carefully and methodically transfer what we learned and experienced recently from our short-term to our long-term memory systems. And some of the, the same parts that our brain used during the waking experiences actually wake up and are reactivated and fire, 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 because of neurons that fire together, wire together. So we create a structural 
change that maintains what was previously an electrical circuit that was just being held in a buffer and looping. Now it's become hardware. I like that bag of molecules uh, and electricity. So that bag of molecules and electricity now has a synapse or more connections that create that memory. So Which memories do our brains choose to store? Well, you'd think it would be adaptive, right? So uh, the first observation is that memories are more likely to be stored if they potentially aid in your survival. And uh, as a a recovering medical student, that means test test answers. And the other thing is that the brain more readily stores memories that have either have a strong emotional valence, in other words, a greater positive or negative emotional association. This is called affective relevance. That's affective as in affect, not effect. And this, uh, what about song lyrics? We're we're actually pretty good at remembering song lyrics, and we store them in a in a special place in our brain, which is interesting. Uh, wonder what the survival is value is of that. But song lyrics are fun and pleasurable, and so we have uh, we have associations. But you know that that guy Jerry, uh, who's in the office next door, he's not much fun, and so at least we forget his name. So we need when. If you have trouble remembering names, try to make it funny, you know, come up with an association. But also, if you really like the person, it's easier to remember their name. And our brains prefer to store positive experiences. Uh, The reward, which is the hippocampus and the ventral temporal limbic system, are reactivated at night. So rewarding things get that extra oomph of the neurons firing together. So here's the interesting thing about this. We've been talking about non-REM sleep, but REM sleep also forms memories. But these are negative experiences. And when we, when we are dreaming during REM sleep, we are much more likely to be storing negative experiences than positive ones. We're reliving those and firing those off. And... Uh, I, you know, I must say I enjoy most of my dreams, so I'm having a hard time with this concept. But it is an intriguing idea that the the act the act of storing things it involves an emotional imprinting that then determines exactly what part of the sleep cycle is in charge of storing these and working them out, and it does provides some real specific relevance to night terrors and also PTSD and the sleep disruption that comes with that. So maybe there's some therapeutic benefit that could be derived out of this new knowledge. In any way, I thought you'd find it intriguing. Moving on, uh, I think I'll. it's a good time for a surreal moment. So let's talk about this one. A neurosurgeon in Canberra, Australia, got a big surprise when he went to remove a benign brain tumor from a woman's head, and it moved. Uh, This is the world's first case of a new parasitic infection in humans. And uh, 
This was in the brain of a ninety of a sixty four year old Australian uh, woman, and the surgeon. Uh, pulled out a live eight-centimeter roundworm that was curled up in the lady's brain. Uh, These are roundworms that are commonly found with carpet pythons, which are prevalent in Australia. Uh, The name of the uh, parasite is Ophidasarix roberti. How'd you like to have a brain parasite named after you? Well, I guess it it beats... complete oblivion historically, but not by much. Uh, Anyway, how this got in there uh, is pretty amazing. In humans, these bugs usually cause stomach pain, vomiting, diarrhea. They they inhabit the bowel. Uh, This woman lived in southeastern New South Wales in a marshland where she uh, often uh, collected greens and cook them, and they think that she probably ate the greens and got this into her bowel, and uh, the the, uh, roundworm usually go from the bowel into the liver and the lungs, but they didn't find them there. Instead, uh, they found them in her brain. Now, this goes back to 2022. She began having some subtle changes in memory and thought processing. And she had an MRI, and it showed an atypical lesion in the right frontal lobe of the brain. Of course, an MRI gives you a snapshot, so they didn't see it moving. And uh, so the MRI scan's like, well, you've got a tumor, and you've got symptoms, so we think it's like a benign tumor, but we're going to take it out. Now, how would they know? It's the shape, right? It's, you know, if it's round and doesn't have a lot of little spiky things coming off of it, doesn't have a starfish-like appearance, it's much more likely to be a benign tumor. But this was a weird one. So they went after it. And like I said, when they tried to take it out, it was an actual worm living in this lady's brain. This is... uh, a really, really surreal news story, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, let's talk algae. Okay, so uh, the big missing ingredient in plant-based diets is uh, B12, and there's a people who are vegan run the risk of getting a micronutrient deficiency. Uh, of B12. B12 is actually made by bacteria in the digestive systems of animals like cows and sheep. And of course, it is a very relatively small molecule. It can get into the meat, it can get into the milk, it can get into the eggs. And uh, that's a problem for vegans, because uh, They have to take a B12 supplement that's synthetic, and if you're a real purist, you don't want to do that. But algae don't make B12 themselves, but they have it in them, and they absorb it directly from the seawater, rather like the bacteria, uh, the competence bacteria that I was just talking about. They, oh, that's handy. I think I'll take me some of that. And they pull it out in from seawater because the seawater contains the bacteria that create B12. Now, if you don't get enough B12, you can develop neuropathy, you can get heart, con- you're much more vulnerable to heart disease and diabetes and dementia. And acute B12 uh, deficiency, people get muscle weakness, nausea, weight loss, fatigue, uh, something called pernicious anemia, because is the 
poster child for that syndrome because this is a situation where people have an autoimmune disorder that destroys their ability to absorb dietary B12. And so recent research has found that we can make uh, a very effective B12 supplement from algae. And so I thought that was uh, very interesting news for vegans who are, in general, very healthy people, but uh, they do have to really pay attention to certain issues. And one of them is this B12 issue. So a recent study looked at, well, actually it was a meta-analysis, and they looked at 110,000 adults who uh, had been reporting their bowel movements. I'm wondering about this data, but reporting their bowel movements and then self-assess their cognitive function, you know, how uh, how clear are they thinking. And some of the participants actually had cognitive function testing, but they consolidated a bunch of studies. And what they found was that constipated participants had notably worse cognition than those who had daily bowel movements. Uh, it added about three extra years of cumulative cognitive aging. And uh, they had a 73% increased risk of cognitive decline, taking all comers, uh, compared to 37% risk for people who were regular. And uh, they had, when they did an analysis of a subgroup of 500 and looked at stool samples, they found that they had less of uh, bacteria, the good bacteria, but we like to think of the probiotics that digest d- dietary fiber and are anti-inflammatory, and more of the inflammatory, so-called dysbiotic bacteria. And inflammation can travel up that vagus nerve. We don't need even quantum entanglement for that to happen. And it can get into your brain and make you less functional cognitively. So, our, the moral of the lesson is fiber, fruits and vegetables, Mediterranean diet. There's like so much here that ties into the next story, which is that uh, what's the connection there? Why does a uh, why does exercise and a, an antioxidant rich diet that's high in fiber work? Well, a big piece of that is because this feeds mitochondria. The mitochondria exist in all of your cells. I alluded to it earlier when I talked about them coming through the maternal line. These are energy factories. They they change food into energy, but they age and they also store calcium. They destroy cells that aren't working properly by saying, okay, pull the ripcord, we're making, we're doing cell suicide. They are in charge of the kill switch. You know, self-destruct will take place in 30 seconds. You've seen the movie. Uh, they also generate heat. And as mitochondria weaken, people start feeling colder. They, the mismanagement of the iron calcium concentration creates an overabundance of reactive oxygen species, and the mitochondria themselves are wounded and don't regenerate effectively. And our brains are always running hot, and so they suck up a fifth of our total calories and a fifth of our total oxygen. So they are very sensitive to oxidative 
uh, damage, and they need as many antioxidants as we can force across that blood-brain barrier. Now, in order to keep your mitochondria healthy, you have to exercise. You've got to do endurance training, and it's very preventative. So exercise increases blood flow to the brain. It makes the hippocampus, your memory switchboard, healthier, bigger, stronger. It grows new neurons. It raises levels of BDNF, which you need in your brain to make new synapses. And the best measurement for mitochondrial fitness is how much your body can use oxygen during exercise, because you only use oxygen via the mitochondria. So we can indirectly, all these indirect measurements this week, we can indirectly assess the health of the mitochondria and also build the mitochondria by endurance. So how much oxygen do I how much oxygen can I use up in a unit of time that tells me how many mitochondria I have operated so uh, I'm looking I'm really hoping for like vo2 max testing apparatus that I that isn't like tertiary care center level but the easiest way to figure it out is to just see how um, Hard you can how hard you can exercise without getting short of breath, and try every day to make it just a little further up that hill, and you will get somewhere somewhere really really good. Well, we're running down to the last minute and a half, so I have another bit of medical trivia for you. Uh, bit of research on mosquitoes. This was done in Zambia by a researcher at the Johns Hopkins University. Uh, And what they did was they measured uh, what the mosquitoes were attracted to. And they found that uh, people exude a lot of compounds, including uh, carbon dioxide, of course, and that's what the mosquitoes are attracted to. But the mosquitoes are also attracted to carboxylic acid compounds. These are on human skin oils and are produced by skin microorganisms. But the mosquitoes are absolutely repelled by eucalyptol, which is uh, a good mosquito repellent. And I'm wondering about whether uh, just adding a little eucalyptus oil to your body lotion might not do the trick. I'll have to give that a try. I've got plenty of mosquitoes out back right now. I've been waving them away all afternoon while I prepared for this program. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.